Well, what an interesting couple of weeks that's been around here. Uh, if you weren't here last week, you probably don't know that there was some kind of a power surge or something downtown last week, and so we came in Sunday morning, and just as we're getting ready to start church, we realized that some of the computer settings had been changed, and so we got neither audio nor video recordings last week. Um, We're going to try to correct that in the next week or two uh, as Al continues his uh, recovery and his fight with boredom. We're we're hoping to... uh, probably videotape his sermon from last week. It was quite good. It's a, it's a sig- significant portion of scripture, and we don't want to leave it out of the series, so we will make that up at some point. Um, what's that? Well, sure. Absolutely. Um, but just in case, I'm going, to re, uh, I'm going to preach that sermon from last week as well as my own today. So <laughs> you've come on a good day. Um, we also found out about mid-service last week that uh, one of the AC units had a compressor failure at some point during the week, and it got a little warm in here. The other two weren't able to quite compensate for the third one. That has now been prepared. Uh, so little did we know months ago when Al and I settled on this particular series of sermons that the ideas of suffering and endurance and perseverance and finding joy and all circumstances would apply not just culturally, but would apply so close to home as well. Uh, most of you know Kim is going through chemo treatments, and Scotty Curl is recovering from multiple bypass surgeries, um, and they're hoping they will be uh, available for visitors soon, so we'll keep you posted on that. Um, and then, you know, much like the Tin Man, Al received a, uh, a new stent um, this last week um, that will probably require another procedure in weeks to come, but they're all convalescing nicely. Uh, And these are just some of the big things that we know about that are happening in our body. I mean, we we all probably have areas of struggle, some big issues, some small issues, and we just deal with them. It's just just part of life. Uh, Work stresses and, and financial pressures, relational turmoil. And it turns out all of those things are covered by Paul's admonition to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. This has been a very timely series, although, frankly, uh, it gives Al and I pause as we start to consider what our next sermon series ought to be. (laughs) I mean, if we go Old Testament, are we going to deal with plagues, maybe, or we're going to see the Phoenician hordes amassing at the borders? Uh, Maybe just lions and a coliseum will be... uh, I I don't know what to expect. Um, But, yeah... (laughs) But all of this, I think, does speak to the fact, the, you know, the alarming and prescient wisdom of this ancient text, that it speaks as much to us today as it did to the first hearers. It is still remarkably relevant. So people hear me when I say this. We are not the crazy, loony people for relying on this book and depending on this God. It's everyone else. It's everyone else who who, who maybe thinks they're smarter or thinks they're too independent. They don't need God. They don't need his word. They're the ones who will suffer for no reason, for no purpose, for no reward. Who will ultimately find that their wisdom is not really wisdom at all, but it's foolishness. Because our God is faithful. Let's pray before we jump into the real text this week. 
Lord, we are grateful this morning. We are grateful for uh, all, all of those things that I just mentioned, all the issues that we're going through and all the struggles that people have. And, and while they can um, weaken us, Lord, they don't have to destroy us. While they can give us moments of doubt, we have no reason to have any real lack of faith in who you are and what you do and your love for us. It just it is evident all around if we look for the examples of it. We thank you for the gift of your word that we can spend time going through and, and find it is so, so deep and so rich and so meaningful and just as applicable for us today as it was in the first century when it was written. Uh, and that, that's just amazing, amazing to us. So we thank you for this opportunity to gather together uh, as, as those who call on your name, followers of Christ. Lord, may we hear what you have for us in this text this morning. May it, may it cause us to, to grow deeper in our faith. May it, may it encourage us to live joyfully in spite of all the circumstances that we deal with. We thank you for your overwhelming love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so we're, we're, we're two weeks. This is the third sermon now into our series on Philippians. And as you've heard by now, um, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi was really meant to, to encourage. It, it was intended to remind them of the joy that they could find in Christ. Which, as, as Paul was writing this, it seems counterintuitive with Paul's whole writing from jail while handcuffed to a guard scenario. He's writing to them that they can be joyful in their circumstances. But Paul's situation is even more troubled than just the fact that he's chained to a guard all the time. He's got people who are after him, who, who are uh, uh, trying to replace him, trying to usurp his authority within the church. They've attacked his character, um, and he suggests in the first chapter that there are some out there who are even preaching the name of Jesus with questionable motives. Maybe as a way to make a buck. We may be familiar with some of this in our own culture today. People who are selling anointed hankies or they're selling, you know, consecrated sponges that are still damp with Jesus' tears. All is a way to make a buck. And Paul says, you know what? I don't care what the motivation is. As long as Jesus is proclaimed... Paul didn't care about his own status, his own standing. He didn't care about his own position. As long as Jesus was being proclaimed, Paul was good with it. I'm not sure I would be as good with it. So Paul's imprisoned. He's shackled inside this room with, you know, tied to a, to a guard. He's enduring verbal and character assaults on the outside. And he writes, chapter 1, verse 19, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, this seems like maybe just cockeyed optimism on the part of Paul. Was he really going to be set free from this cell, from this lockup? Does he really believe that he's going to be ultimately freed for this charge, this offense, whatever it was? Probably, but here's really the important part. We kind of logically assume that as Paul writes this, by deliverance, he means I'm going to be set free from this cell. I'm going to be set free from these chains. Unchained from this guard, I'll be able to get back to, to preaching and, and, and teaching people. And, but our assumption would be wrong. Because Paul's definition of deliverance was bigger. It was broader. It was grander than that. He goes on to write just a verse or two later, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Yep, I'm going to be delivered. I will ultimately be delivered. Could be dead, could be alive. I don't know. Either way... I'm free. I'll be delivered from all of this. Now, I think this is pretty remarkable. Paul is not being 
flippant here. He's not being dismissive of his physical constraints and his environment at the moment. He's not even ignoring or dismissing the possibility of future martyrdom. He basically says, you know what? I see advantages of both living and dying. Being alive allows me to continue to live up to my calling. Being alive allows me to fulfill the mission that God himself put me on, that Jesus called me to. It allows me to continue to walk in a worthy manner. I get to continue to preach Jesus if I'm alive. If I'm dead, I get to be with Jesus. In the presence of the believers who've gone on before me, spending an eternity in a place prepared especially for me, that's not bad. I can be content either way. And Paul's attitude is remarkable given his context, but I would argue it's especially remarkable in contrast to our own context and culture. I mean, we've spent most of the last year and a half doing everything humanly possible to avoid even the hint of the slightest possibility of potential but highly unlikely death. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm I'm not minimizing any death or illness that has occurred during the last 18 months. I'm not questioning anyone's reasonable choices about how they chose to deal with it. But ever since Eve bit the fruit, death has been a part of life. And I don't think it's coincidental that as our culture drifts farther and farther away from God, we we, we become increasingly fearful of death. Those dots connect. So this is not a political soapbox. I'm just simply pointing out that Paul faced more potentially fatal situations more often than most of us ever will. And his attitude was, living is good. I can make a solid argument for being alive. But dying? Well, heaven and Jesus and angels and an end of all these beatings and imprisonments and suffering. It's a pretty strong argument there as well. Paul had no fear of death. What he had was absolute faith in God. That God was ultimately in control of all of this. So Paul continued. He said, so this, this, this is my circumstance. This is what I'm dealing with. Uh, but until my time comes, I'm going to remain faithful. I'm going to continue to teach all of you, to try to encourage all of you to find glory. He says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. It's an incredible message that Paul shares with the church here. He is willing, he's eager, it seems, to forego his eternal home for now because his job, his mission, is not yet completed. He wants to help guide them, to help steer them into their their spiritual progress, to help them find joy in the faith so that Christ can be glorified through Paul and through the church. And this is still just the first chapter. We're not even into the big heart of the text yet. So this is where we pick up today. Verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. 
<clears throat> so Paul continues on this, this train of thought that he's on. He says, as long as I remain alive, as long as you remain alive, let's make sure that our, our manner of life is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we talked a lot about being worthy in Ephesians, which we just finished up. We talked about walking in a, in a worthy manner. The idea is, if you call yourself a Christian, if you identify as a Christ follower, your life ought to reflect that in, in a meaningful way. Some have suggested that this use of the word worthy can also mean something like deserving. So that if you've named Jesus as Lord, if your sins have been forgiven, you are considered blameless and holy. So your obligation and your desire now ought to be to live like you mean it, to live like you have earned it, to live like you deserve it. So we, we love Jesus. We, we've made him Lord of our life. We, we, we desire to follow his clear teaching. We, we live as though we deserve those gifts of grace that we have already received. And that's the interesting part. We've already been given God's grace. There's nothing we can do to earn it. He's given it to us freely. But now because we've received it, it should encourage us. It should compel us. It should behoove us. I just like that word. Behoove us to share our deep gratitude, to show our deep gratitude, and try to live up to the grace that we've already been given. It kind of struck me a little bit as like the idea of reverse engineering. You know, where, where you buy a product and you take it apart to see how it works and, and how it's been made. Salvation has been given to us. We, we have it. We've been forgiven, we've been justified, we've been made holy, and now, in grateful response, we set about trying to figure out how to live up to that. How to step up to, how to embrace our forgiven status. If our sins have been forgiven and God considers us sinless, shouldn't our motivation be to try to sin less? That's the idea. So Paul encourages this church to live up to their calling, so that whether he's there or not, he knows that they're standing firm in the Spirit. But he doesn't say standing firm in the Spirit. He says standing firm in one Spirit. With one mind. Striving side by side for the gospel. So Paul makes this, again, as is consistent in many of his letters, this appeal to unity in the church. And you can almost pick up a sense that because he's addressing unity early on, that maybe there are some minor issues in Philippi that he will get to later. But he's, he's making the appeal for unity here. And he does it in virtually all of his letters. He says, strive side by side together for the gospel so that you're not frightened by your opponents. I think Paul's making a pretty strong argument here that the church is stronger together. We are stronger united much stronger than, than we would ever be if we were divided, if there is disunity, because we are going to face opponents. We are going to face challenges, and we're better prepared to deal with those challenges when we are unified in Christ. But then he goes on to say, your unity in the face of suffering or the face of persecution, your, your unity in the face of those opponents really has two effects or consequences. It's a clear sign to the persecutors and oppressors assigned to them of their own destruction if you hang together in the face of persecution and it's a sign of your salvation and both of those things are come from god paul's argument here is in essence the, the more the church is persecuted and then the more it hangs together the more it stays united the more it perseveres together 
even in the face of, of oppression, the more we rally around the cross together, the more the oppressors come to realize that this strength, this cohesion, this power, this perseverance must come from some larger, bigger, more powerful source. I mean, look at these people. There's nothing special about them. They're just regular people. How can they endure this? How can they persevere through this? They can't possibly withstand all of this pressure and persecution and oppression all on their own. This power has to come from someplace else. And at some point, it will become clear to the persecutors, to the opponents, the persecutors of those whom God empowers, that they are ultimately fighting against God himself, and they will not win. I mean, this is what Paul is dealing with in his cell, in his his lockup, as he writes this. The, the, the soldiers who are chained to Paul day and night, they start to see Paul, and they're watching him. They're with him every moment of every day, and they start thinking, this guy is a bit weird. He's not weeping or ranting about his rights. He's not gnashing his teeth. He's not crying himself to sleep. He's not begging for mercy. He's not trying to bribe us to let him out. He's writing joyful letters to his fellow believers. He's, he's receiving visitors and, he, and he's talking to people joyfully about Christ, about suffering for the sake of Christ. What is wrong with this guy? And as a result, Paul says, well, some of those soldiers even became followers of Christ. Now, sadly, it seems like in our culture, more often than not, uh, our opponents, our persecutors, when they begin to realize that the church is not folding, that, that Christians, not all anyway, uh, we're not capitulating, we're not denouncing Christ, rather than give up and say, well, God is bigger, it seems like it just inspires them to dig in and go harder and to push harder and push farther. And I, I don't know, maybe the thinking is, well, if I'm going you know, to go down for persecuting the church, I'm going to go down swinging and take as many Christians with me as possible. I don't know what the motivation is, but the long pattern of church history makes this clear persecutors don't come up against the church and find that the church doesn't fold and they go, oh well, we gave it a shot. Nope, more lions. We need more oil. Get more wood for the fire. It just causes them to dig in harder and deeper. And we're seeing more evidence of this, I think, in our own age. Persecution, if we can call it that, seems to keep ratcheting up. But we don't have God's view. We don't have God's perspective in all of this. We don't know what work the Spirit is doing even when we're feeling this oppression. We're just called to persevere. We're just called to stay faithful. So unity for the church is important in many areas, but here Paul makes the argument that it keeps us faithful and it condemns the persecutors. And then the next phrase I found really interesting. The context again, unity is required to endure suffering and persecution. And then Paul slips in there, for it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. <clears throat> so I think what struck me about this, well, Paul, Paul doesn't just say you're going to suffer. I mean, we all know that. We've all experienced that. He doesn't just say you're going to suffer. That would have been pretty well known by this time. Christ followers were facing persecution throughout the Roman Empire. But Paul says it has been granted to you to suffer. 
The Greek word for granted here can also be translated as give or given. It, it has the idea of being bestowed or, uh, or given freely. And it's always used in a positive, gracious, benevolent kind of way. In 2 Peter, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. For the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. God has granted repentance that leads to life, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. It's always in the form of a a blessing or a gracious gift. I mean, at at very worst, it's the affirmative response to a request. Paul says, you, 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 you church, you followers of Christ, you've been granted, you've been bestowed, you've been freely given, you've been graciously allowed this gift of suffering. For the sake of Christ. And at this point, we stop and think, I don't remember asking for suffering or persecution. I don't know why he's granted this request that I did not make. But we also know that the Lord knows what we need before we even ask. So we had it coming. But Paul here purposely equates salvation with suffering. It has been granted to you that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for him. Our salvation and our suffering seems to be a package deal. It's a match set. It's like those old collectible salt and pepper shakers, you know, people used to have. I mean, the value really is in having them both. And Paul's pretty consistent on this topic throughout his life and throughout his teaching. In 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 16, he says, Our other self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed. There's the idea of salvation. This is what's happening to us internally. That's the salvation piece. And just a few verses prior, he says, We are afflicted, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. So Paul's suffering, our suffering is for Jesus' sake. It serves, at least in part, as a reminder to us of the life and death of Jesus, that he willingly suffered for us. And it's also a reminder to us, I think, of the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit that has also been given to us. We can endure. We can persevere through this. Jesus suffered and died, but death did not hold him. And with that same power from the same Holy Spirit, We can be afflicted, but not crushed. We can be persecuted, but not forsaken. We will ultimately die, but only this outer part. We're going to live forever. Jesus also warned us, whoever wants to follow me must deny himself and take up his cross. We're called to suffer. Throughout the history of the church, suffering and potential persecution were always a part of salvation. In many places in the world, it still is. Here in the U.S., hasn't really impacted us quite the same way. We've had it easy. Some might say we've gotten a little soft. I think one of the comments from our Wednesday night meeting about prayer there was, we're we're snowflake Christians. I mean, people call us names and we think we're being persecuted. They block our Twitter account and we think we're suffering. Oh, the persecution. 
as opposed to, you know, being boiled alive or burned alive or fed to the lions or torn apart by horses or any of a number of other actual tortures that early Christians willingly suffered. And why did they willingly suffer? Because as a result of having been granted salvation, they'd also been granted the opportunity to suffer. Like Christ. They understood that living for Christ in this life is good, but living for Christ with an eye on the next life is better. And when that next life comes, even better still. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, that same section I alluded to earlier, Paul referred to suffering, even dying, as this light, momentary affliction. That it's preparing for us glory beyond all comparison. So all the cares, all the stresses, all the sufferings, all the, all the pain, all, all the discomfort, everything we experience in this world, it's, it's a whisper, it's a shadow, it's a, it's a, it's a blop, blip on the radar of the joy that is to come. And because of that, we have hope. We have hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. Hope for an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled. Our inheritance will not be affected by inheritance tax. It won't be affected by governmental policy. It won't be affected by inflation. It won't be affected by Bitcoin or fidelity fund managers. Our inheritance is secure and eternal. So that, like Paul, we can truly say to live for Christ, but to die for Christ is better. So while we live, we're to live in a manner of life worthy of the gospel. When we stand firm in the faith, in spite of persecution and suffering and sickness and disease and all the other things that we have to face, our persecutors may come to understand who God is, whether or not they worship him, they'll come to understand that there is passion and power and meaning in our perseverance. And that power comes from someplace else. Romans 1 says that what can be known about God is plain to everybody. He, he, he put it into creation. We, we can learn about God from creation itself. But then, Paul says, we give additional proof to God and his salvation by how we live. When we receive the blessing of suffering that has been granted to us, when we receive the blessing of suffering that has been granted to us, we become more Christ-like. I mean, he suffered. So our suffering, accepting our suffering, even joyfully accepting our suffering, makes us more Christ-like. And it confounds the onlookers. End of chapter 1. Shall we move on? Here we go. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So it just keeps getting easier and easier as we go through here. Obviously, this is a continuation of the previous thought. It, it, it has been granted to you to receive salvation. It's been granted to you to suffer. 
to experience the same kind of spiritual battle that Paul himself has experienced. And so he can say, be strong, stay faithful, stay encouraged, walk in a worthy manner. And then he gives us just a couple tips on how to do that. Stay encouraged by following the pattern of Christ. Now, don't be confused by the fact that Paul throws in an if here. If there is any encouragement. Paul is not expressing doubt that these traits exist, that these values exist within the church. He's not expressing any doubt that the church has expressed these traits towards Paul himself, love and sympathy and support. He's not doubting that these traits come from Christ. He throws this if there, I think, as a, um, a liter- literary device just to, to cause them to pause for a minute, maybe, maybe self-reflect. If you're in Christ, you should be showing these traits. You should be displaying these traits. You should be able to find comfort and love in Christ. You should be able to find affection and sympathy for others in Christ. You should be participating in the work of the Spirit. So, church, are you? If you have these traits, you're, you're part of the church. You're part of the body. You're walking in a worthy manner. So, church, if you have these, you're participating. If not, you may have some work to do. Now, the pursuit of these traits, as we all know, is very personal. We all have to work on these together. We're expected to pursue these traits on our own. But there's also a corporateness to it. I mean, these are, these are all traits that we share together as followers of Christ. They help bind us together as a unified church. I mean, we have this collection of, you have to admit, this collection of fairly odd persons. You know, some are hard to love, um, some are stubborn, some are stiff-necked, some are just knuckle-headed people, uh, all of whom Christ died for. This group of people, we, we may have little else in common, but together, living a worthy life, being led by the Spirit, we can together find comfort and love and sympathy as we participate in the Spirit individually and collectively. This is the hallmark of the church. These are some of the traits of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. It's unity and purpose and these shared values and traits. So Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Think of the group. Practice humility. Now, obviously, he's talking about the collection, the group of people here. It's hard to practice humility alone. Consider others more significant than yourselves. So don't just think about your own interests. Don't just think about your your own wants or needs or goals, especially as you're part of a church body. How many times have you heard people say, uh, as they leave a church to go look for another church someplace, they leave saying, well, we just weren't being fed. Now, there may be cases where that is entirely true. That is absolutely the case. You know, the the Bible was not being preached as it ought to be preached. It was a, a surface feel-goody, pseudo-gospel where God just wants you to be healed and happy and certainly upper-middle class. If that's the case, then go out and find a church that preaches the Bible. But it also might be the case that when people say that, it was that their interests were focused entirely on themselves. Was Was there a need in that church that they could have filled but didn't? Was there an opportunity for them to serve and they didn't? Were they just consumers? And after a while, that menu just got stale and boring. 
so that their needs were the most important part of that decision-making process. They weren't concerned about the body or its lacks or needs. That's the kind of thinking that Paul was talking about here. That's the kind of uh, not thinking of ourselves, putting others first that Paul's stressing here. Now, you, we've heard about these you know, classic church fights about the color of the walls or the, the fabric on the pews. So Paul reminds us, don't, don't just think about your own desires, what your favorite color is. Look after the interests of others as well. Don't be so myopic that all you see is you. Show a care for other people. And at this point, you know, we've, we've heard this now for, for generations and generations, and, but what Paul is laying out here is not just hackneyed, cliched kind of advice. He's not just saying, so do unto other people and everything's going to be great. Paul is describing Christ-likeness. If Christ exemplifies these traits, if he lived these out, if he was our example of humility, then we should try to do the same thing. That's what we should try to emulate as well. And honestly, living this kind of life is, is daunting and, and overwhelming. Trying to be humble, trying to think of others as more significant than ourselves. We will do none of this perfectly. We will do none of this consistently. But we can at least make it a goal to get better at it. And Paul continues this theme in most of his other letters to churches as well. So it's not just lip service on how we can live our best life now. Paul says, here's how to live like Christ. He's, he's trying to prepare us for this mindset of service, of being other-oriented. And it turns out this also is a necessary byproduct of the gospel. It's part and parcel of salvation. Just as, so, just as salvation coexists with suffering, sometimes it seems like they're, they're flip sides of the same coin, salvation also coexists and necessitates the call to love and to practice humility towards others. And there are some moments where I struggle with this. There are days. There could be weeks even. This is probably just me. This is just confession time. You guys just listen along as though you're interested. <clears throat> there are periods where I am inclined to think, this just seems so idealistic. Could, is this even possible? You're telling me I have to love that guy? That I have to think of him as more significant than me? I mean, clearly Jesus has never met Brother Earl over there. He's just, he's just tough. He's hard to love. It's hard to think of him as more significant. I mean, more significantly annoying, maybe. I'm just saying, we, we all have this struggle from time to time with this, this concept of loving others and, and, and being humble. We all have people in our spheres, uh, our, our families maybe, that are just harder to love. We disagree with literally every decision they make. They're know-it-alls or they're never-wrongers. They're quick to point out everyone else's faults while, while ignoring, denying all of their own. And it seems nigh on impossible to love them, to sympathize with them, to consider them more significant. How is this possible? I think Paul probably saw this question coming. In fact, I think Paul probably struggled on this point from time to time too. He was human after all. He met an awful lot of loony church people along the way. I think Paul, Paul probably struggled here as well. Which is why he's quick to remind us that humility is what we ought to do 
And he reminds us to practice humility by reminding us that Jesus did do it. He's our example. He's our role model. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's another passage that should require about six sermons to really adequately deal with everything here. He starts off with, have this mind among yourselves. So again, I think we can see here both the the call to personal and collective action as we're moving forward here. I mean, I can't can't control your mind. I can try to exert some influence over mine, but we're all supposed to work on this together. We are to develop, we're to embrace this mindset, which Paul refers to as the mind of Christ. So we we can access and we, we can receive as a result of the gift of salvation through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can develop this mindset. And what is the mindset? Well, for Jesus, it meant extreme, ultimate humility. And so Paul starts to lay out his, his supporting argument here. It's interesting that in this whole section, the word humble is only mentioned one time. But what is described is a pattern, a mindset of humility. There are layers, there are degrees of humility that are contained within this section. I mean, Christ Jesus was, was God. He, he existed in the form of God. That's our classic understanding of the Trinity. God is one God, but he eternally exists in three persons. We don't necessarily understand all that this entails or how all of that works, but it's the clear teaching of Scripture. And within the Trinity, there's relationship and there's structure and there's submission from God the Son to God the Father. So when it was somehow decided, landed upon, that Jesus, the Son of God, was needed to complete this extraordinary task, he dutifully obeyed, and he agreed, even though he was an equal part of the Trinity. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. So the first act of humility is made clear in that phrase, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Again, we're not entirely sure how the Trinity functions here. We just, I don't know. Do they have board meetings? You know, do they, do they vote on things? Do, do they follow Robert's rules of orders? I, I don't know. All, all we know is, is that Jesus was a co-equal member of the Godhead. Perhaps he could have argued that he didn't want to be born in a manger. Can we at least upgrade that a little bit? Perhaps he could have stood on some parliamentary procedure and said, hey, I'm a part of this Godhead and I demand my rights. I don't want to go to earth. Have you seen those people? But in this act of astounding humility, Jesus, God the Son, said, okay, Father, I'll go. I will yield. I will set aside. I will empty myself of my rights and my privileges for the sake of those who will benefit from my life and death. Now, this idea of emptying himself has been up for great discussion over the ages. There have been councils met about this. The Greek word is kenosis, which means self-emptying. It it can also mean the idea of gave up, as in he gave up his divine attributes. So some have suggested 
that God gave up his divinity altogether. When he left heaven, he was no longer God. He was just fully man when he came to earth. Rightly, in my view, the orthodox position has been that Jesus was still fully God while also becoming fully man. But he set aside his divine attributes in order to live as we live. Again, it's pretty difficult for us to fully understand what this means, for Jesus to give up or, or set aside his royal status. I mean, I was thinking maybe the, the closest we could get was, you know, if you think about King Edward, who abdicated his throne. He gave up his throne to marry the divorced American woman in 1936. He gave up royalty and prestige and power for love. But he was still part of the royal family. He lived pretty well after that. They had houses in other countries, and he got a salary. It's, it's just not the same thing at all. It's not like King Edward lived in poverty and had to become a carpenter or anything. But Jesus' first great act of humility was leaving the throne room and entering a manger. Next, we're told another act of humility was he took on the form of a man. That's kind of a step down from God, you've got to admit. That's a pretty good step down. He never left the form of God, godliness, but he added on the form of a man. And if you think about it, as some have suggested that he was no longer fully God, then we could not say that he was Emmanuel. He wouldn't be God with us if he left his godliness. So he was still somehow both fully God and fully man. He would just be Jesus, son of Joseph, if he wasn't God. But he became man for us. The, this humility that Paul draws attention to is the fact that he set aside the God status with all the rights, the powers, the privileges, and he became a man for us. He experienced aches and pains and frustrations and disappointments and probably squabbled with his siblings on some account. I mean, he, he lived like men live. That is a long fall from the Trinity. That's got to be humbling. But more than that, he didn't just take on the form of a man. He took on the form of a servant. Now, again, Paul's writing to this culture that's, that's steeped in slavery and servitude. We talked about Ephesus probably having one-third of the population uh, was slaves or servants. We don't know what Philippi was, but probably something similar. And, and, and they had a pretty well-developed class system with Roman citizens at the very top and slave servants at the very bottom. So Paul's language here is, is loaded. It's intentional. Jesus became a servant. This is another extraordinary act of humility. And Jesus saw himself as a slave. He said in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And in another significant act of humility, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, let these ordinary lesser men the men he created, the men that he loved and cared for and provided for and sustained creation for, these men who are truly less significant than Jesus was, he let them kill him. He knew his death was the only way to save their life. And so he humbled himself enough to let these men, the men he created, to let them kill him. And if that sacrificial death wasn't enough, I think the last grand gesture of humility was he submitted to crucifixion, the lowest form of death, which applied to the lowest form of criminal. I mean, that's humility. That's what he came to do. He came to give his life 
And that's what we're called to do. To give our life. To give our lives for Christ. To give our lives for others. Humility for Jesus resulted in his ultimate sacrifice for the rest of us. And Paul says, just be like that. As we all know, we'll never be quite like that. The truth is, practicing humility, seeing others as more significant than ourselves, it is a sacrifice for us as well. It can be hard work. It's, it's the continual practice or trying to practice a lifestyle of meekness and lowliness and, and absence of self. It takes practice to get over us. But our salvation requires us to die to self and then to live for Christ and others as Jesus did. And Paul says, so just so you know, this, this is not just a nice little exercise. You know, it's not just this was the right thing for Jesus to do. It, it's our model for humility also. He adds this last piece on. Consider how this worked out for Jesus. Well, he was killed, but then Paul shows us the impact of humility, the effect of Jesus' sacrifice, and it was highly consequential. I mean, it was consequential for us because we gained salvation from it, but for Jesus, his lowliness resulted in high exaltation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. What appeared to be the lowest form of punishment for men, death on a cross, resulted in the highest honor being bestowed on Jesus, the Son, by God the Father. He went from dying with common thieves to being enthroned and honored, such that, at the name of Jesus, every knee will eventually bow. It doesn't get any more highly exalted than that. Even Satan and his demons will have to bow to King Jesus someday. The result, the reward, the payoff for the struggle for humility is honor. I mean, maybe not for us, probably not for us here on earth. But true humility practiced by the saints will result in honor for the humble. By all accounts, Jesus died the death of the lowest class criminal. In truth, it was an extraordinary act of extraordinary love and extraordinary humility. And it was rewarded by God as will our own humility. Our struggle to walk in a worthy manner will be rewarded. Proverbs said, God gives grace to the humble. Not only can we receive grace and blessing in this life, but we will be accepted and honored in the next. And perhaps most importantly, when we, as the lowly, selfish, foolish people that we are, are forgiven by a gracious and loving God, when we're blessed by our creator with gifts that we haven't earned or deserved, when we're honored for living a life that he empowers us to live in the first place, then God is ultimately glorified in that process. And he is shown to be, just as we know him to be, a good and loving and generous father. Let's pray. Lord, again, we're grateful for this text this morning <clears throat> for the challenge here before us the, just the, the trying to reconcile the idea that you've given us salvation freely we're so excited about that and then that you've granted us freely suffering we are less excited about that but Lord I pray that as we go through the trials and challenges and sufferings and illnesses and whatever we face in this life Lord that you 
your spirit serves to remind us that Christ suffered, and so we are called to suffer. And somehow we know that in our weakness, Jesus is shown to be stronger. He's shown to be more powerful. God is glorified in how we handle perseverance, how we handle persecution and suffering. That you will empower us to endure and to persevere. Lord, I pray that we just learn to rely, more, rely on that more completely, more fully. That we get a better grasp of what it means to be truly humble and to see others as more significant than ourselves. We just ask for strength to, to know how we are to walk. It's going to look different for all of us, but how we are to walk in a, in a manner that's worthy of our calling. We thank you for this great act of love, this great act of sacrifice and humility, and how it has benefited us. In Jesus' name, amen.